social unrest, the state, and the White House. You are listening to the John DePietro Show. John DePietro on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. Folks, you can always listen online at our website, DePietro.com. We have made it to Friday. That's right. We have made it to Friday. Now, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, defense is rested, and starting next week is going to be, uh, well, Monday we'll be closing arguments, then jury instructions. And so, you know, folks, as, as we look at this case, and again, this is the young man. There was trouble in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There was a shooting, and then there was a lot of protests. And this was a young man that went to help out by all accounts. It, to me, it seems like a clear-cut self-defense case. We're going to have to wait and see exactly what the jury says. But the trial has not gone well, put it mildly, for the prosecution. And I think, you know, last summer, coming out of the pandemic, or still in the pandemic, there was just so much emotion on everything. And then a year later, as people look at things, it just... You don't look at it in the same light. And I think a good example is look at the election right now. I mean, it was a year ago, a little over a year ago, that President Biden was announced that he had won the election. Um, who would vote for him today? Raise your hand. I mean, nobody. Country is a mess. Gas prices, inflation, the border, overseas. He doesn't have a handle on it. He and his team. As far as Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, that was something, you know, people can argue. And I used to hear that, you know, why is he out on the street? He has a right to be on the street. Why are the protesters out there? If they're going to be out there, he has a right. He was volunteering to help protect some businesses. But a year later, I'm anxious to see what's going to happen because they brought charges. Charges were brought. See, look at the the, the politics that got involved right like between the election people were afraid that if president trump was reelected that there would have been riots and they would have burned all the cities down there was a fear there there was and but this is an example that there shouldn't have been charges you know there was loss of life but they they were they were going to hurt him the people that he shot uh two of the people he took their lives he didn't it wasn't a it wasn't a flurry of bullets one shot, one shot killed both of them. And one of them was trying to grab his gun. And what was he going to do with it? He had already told him that he was going to kill him if he had a chance. And then the other one had hit him with the skateboard. These were people, they were attacking him. He was there. He had a right to be there. He had a right to be there. He had a right to be helping to defend and put out some of the fires. Think of that. He was going around putting out fires. One of the guys that, that he ended up shooting and killing, this Rosenbaum, he was trying to take a dumpster was on fire and, like, throw it into a police car. So do, do I have sympathy? I mean, I, I actually don't. I really hope that he gets found not guilty, not mistrial. I hope he gets found not guilty. That was self-defense. I hope he walks away scot-free. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, there have been threats against him. And, and there needs to be accountability. LeBron James, this is, a, he's 18 years old, Kyle Rittenhouse. He was 17 when this happened. LeBron James was attacking him, mocking him. This was emotional for him. You know, th th that's one thing for someone like LeBron. I'm, I'm just tired. I think we all are, right? We're tired of this crew. They just snip. And, they, they, and by the way, the people that he shot and killed are white. So they're, they're white. And, and both of them criminal records. And have you seen one of them? The guy just looks off and disturbed and he's screaming and yelling and he was threatening that he was going to kill him. And, and then he went to grab his gun. He probably was going to kill him. Is that really a loss? Why does LeBron James care about that? Why is LeBron James so concerned about that? My God, these people tweeting about Kyle Rittenhouse. As Laura Ingham says, shut up and dribble. Listen, you, you should every day you're lebron james and some of these over the overpaid crybaby athletes be absolutely thanking god that you live in the country that you live in that you're born with the gifts that you have stop commenting on on things you know 
that are, that you have nothing you have no clue about just just try to just do what you're whatever it is that you're doing playing basketball getting paid to play a game for a living and stop commenting on things that matter yes you have the right to do it but i've yet to see where it makes any sense but you know i'll be anxious to see if over the weekend they start the protest and start the threats and try to intimidate the jury and say that you know there's going to be riots if he's found not guilty let them try that just this judge is terrific they have you know all the blm activists and all these other they have met their match in this judge and it is true that the defense has done a good job but it was um it wasn't a good case it was a case that was should not have been brought uh he did have a right to be out there he wasn't someone like just going out and like hunting uh they engaged him and they engaged although 17 years old they engaged someone that had an ar-15 on him and then used it and then when pushed into a corner used it again all right a lot more ahead you're listening to the john DePietro show folks you're listening to the john DePietro show weekdays we start at 11 we go until 2 it's am 1380 99.9 fm you can always listen online at our website pedro.com it's time for our legal segment join me right now he is our legal expert, one of Rhode Island's top attorneys. It is attorney Tim Dodd. And Tim, I want to start off this Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, it's, it, it seems remarkable, obviously, for a lot of different reasons. But let's start off with the fact that judge, very outspoken. And Tim Dodd, I, I, I'm used to seeing, and I think the public might be used to, not to this degree, but some element of the judge giving so many times the defense kind of a, a talking to. But um this seems very unusual how much the judge has, for lack of a better word, but just been berating the prosecution, Tim Dodd. Well, the judge has been correct to berate this particular prosecution team. Um, the, they've got a lousy case. They haven't done a particularly credible job in trying to prosecute it. Things have not gone their way. Um and I think the judge said, you know, you, you're stepping over the line in terms of, you know, what you're attempting to do in front of this jury that any first year law student would know you can't do. The central issue being um, the prosecutor when Kyle Rittenberg, Rittenhouse accused on the stand um, implied that there was something wrong in the fact that the first time Kyle has told his version of the story was on the witness stand. And that there's somehow something to be drawn from the fact that he hasn't spoken about it sooner. That's in direct contravention of uh, Rittenhouse's uh, Fifth Amendment privileges. So the judge was correct to scold the prosecutors out of the presence of the jury. The defense team is having the time of life. This is a sometime, John, when a case is going very well. And it's... Um, being on trial and when things are going your way, it can be, um, I don't want to say a lot of fun, but it can be exciting when things are going your way. Um, yeah. And certainly things have been going yeah. defense for good reason. Um, it seems that the prosecution, John, has been surprised at every turn. Mm. <laughs> One of their key witnesses, that guy, um, Gross Crow. Yeah. Um, basically said that he had pointed his own weapon at yeah. Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. Like, how could the prosecution not know that was going to be what this guy testified? Wow. Did they not prepare their witness? Did they not speak to their witness? I mean, they walked right into an ex something that exploded in their face. They seemed completely unready and unprepared for the fact that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand in his own defense. They had to presume there was a reasonable chance that he would, because when the defense asserts self-defense as an affirmative defense, there's a burden shifting wherein the defense has a certain obligation um, and a certain burden of proof to explain and to prove to the jury that the self-defense um, um, 
that's been raised can be backed up by credible evidence. And, you know, people might think that Kyle Rittenhouse is just some goofy young kid with, you know, a hero complex, but the kid did a pretty good job on the witness stand. He Um, did. He got his punches in there. You know, he said, yes, I shot because I was afraid for my life. I mean, and the way the prosecution was asking questions, I'm not sure how much of Kyle's testimony was organic and how much he had been really coached and prepped. But he knew just when to stick his points in um, right in the prosecutor's face. Um, You know, the mainstream media is poo-pooing the fact that he started to sob and break down on the stand. You know, was that... Again, an organic uh, emotional um, moment that Kyle had. Was he acting? I think it's wholly believable and credible that this young man who has, whether he's found not guilty or not, even if he walks away from this quote unquote scot free, he's got to live with the fact that he killed two people and wounded right. a third in a, yeah. in a major way. And whether he intended it or whether this was a situation that this escalated to the point that he opened fire, um, unless you're really a a cold-hearted person, you know, the notion that even if you were justified in shooting, the fact that this justified shooting led led to two deaths is something that I'm sure is going to... um, keep this guy up nights for the rest of his life. So I think it's a legitimate reaction, but the defense is having a very good time. And when the judge asks the jury to go out and it's because something that the prosecutors have done or said, and the defense objects and the judge, you know, you can tell he's irritated sends the jury out. The jury knows what's going on. Right. <laughs> they know the prosecutor is going to be taken to the woodshed. They don't know what he did wrong, but they knew he did something wrong. Um, oh. And it seems that every time the judge has called one of these timeouts so he could yell at the prosecutors, it's out of the presence of the jury, but they intuitively or instinctively know something is amiss with the prosecution's case. And they scratching their heads when when the the guy that got wounded acknowledges pointing a gun yeah. at, at at Kyle. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that if you're on no. the defense team. Now, Tim Dodd, and, and the significance of that was, if in fact he admitted um, he didn't shoot him until he pointed the gun at him, uh, it, I mean that. I, I'm just are, are are you surprised that they put that particular witness on the stand, or is it just they're playing that with the case that they were given, which is is a tough case? It's a tough case, and you, yeah, the, these two gentlemen who are prosecuting the case, the I mean, they might have said, "Hey, no way, I'm not trying this turkey." And the, the DA for this jurisdiction might have said, well, you don't have a choice. Somebody's got to do it. And you two drew the short straws. You got to try the case. Um, there's been some speculation, John, in the media that the conduct and the questions that the prosecutors are asking is, is, are so outrageous that it's almost mm. as they're intentionally trying to create a mistrial. Now, wow. I don't think they're doing that. Um, That would be a pretty um, risky move right now. Defense counsel at at this stage, the evidence is closed. The prosecutors put up one rebuttal witness who really didn't do much of anything. Uh, There was back and forth about a blurry um, blow up from a drone um, footage. Right. That I don't think is going to be conclusive of anything. You know, the prosecutors say, oh, look, there's Kyle and he's pointing a gun towards the the gentleman that got shot. Um, 
it's such a blurry image, you really can't tell what it is. So right. I don't know that the jury is going to be convinced um, uh, on that basis. But it's also interesting. Um, defense counsel put <laughs> during their case. Defense counsel put into evidence a number of blow-up photographs. Yep. Enlarged from the original to show what they wanted it to show to the jury. So here's here's our blow up of such and such a scene. The judge we offer it full. The judge looks at the prosecutor. They don't object, so it comes in full. Yep. Now it's the prosecutor's turn to put in their blow up photo, and the defense counsel, who is much sharper, objects. Yeah. Objects, right. saying the blow up. Um, it doesn't it distorts details it's not as reliable as the original photo the judge looks at the prosecutor and says what do you have to say to that prosecutor says well the defense counsel did it the judge says you didn't object if you don't (laughs) object shame on you now when you're trying to do something similar if defense counsel is smart enough to raise the appropriate evidentiary issue you know you had the equal opportunity and you sat on your hands so at, at every turn, the judge seems to be um, less than enchanted with the presentation that these prosecutors are putting up. Um, and if I was one of these prosecutors, I, I'd be just kind of mortified and saying, see, I didn't want to try this clunker of a case. Yeah. And, you know, these two in the way they're putting this case on, I guarantee this case and some of what's been going on with a direct examination and cross of witnesses, and even Kyle's testimony will be taught in law schools. This is a case. Oh, this will absolutely be part of like when you take classes and evidence, um, things to do and things not to do. And um, I think it would be very instructive for uh, students in law school to see this because you got to be careful what you do, especially in front of a jury. I mean, there's a little more leeway when it's a judge trial sitting without a jury, but when there's a jury there, you can't ask questions which um, put into play um, Rittenhouse's Fifth Amendment rights. I mean, you just can't, as a prosecutor, say, well, you haven't talked about this before and expect that the jury can draw a negative inference from that. That's just outrageous conduct. And this judge has been a judge for 40 years. I mean, how could the prosecutor possibly think he was going to smoke that past the judge or by a very savvy defense team? Um, There's there's just no way that was going to happen. Um, The defense made a motion for the judge to declare a mistrial. And the judge has reserved so far on that motion um, to call a mistrial. If the judge ultimately says, I'm declaring a mistrial, if the judge finds that the conduct of the prosecutors was you know, so outrageous that their conduct caused the mistrial, the judge could say it's a mistrial and the case is dismissed with prejudice, meaning it could never come back. Or if the judge said there's simply a mistrial without prejudice, then there could be a new trial starting all over again with maybe this judge, maybe a different judge. But the testimony is all transcribed. People are all testified under oath. No one's going to be able to change their story. I guess if you really were a cynic, you'd say, well, the prosecutors are trying to tank this case and create a mistrial with prejudice so that Kyle Rittenhouse never gets the um, satisfaction, let's say, of uh, being acquitted, being found not guilty. If the case was dismissed with prejudice because of prosecutorial misconduct, well, the talking point would be, well, this kid was never found not guilty. So I don't know if that would be their motivation. Right. But Tim Dodd, right now, and again, folks, we speak with our legal expert, Tim Dodd, uh, unless I'm missing something, I, I would think the defense, they they want to go for a verdict because it would seem that they have a very good, it's tough to, you know, not being there and watch the jury, but 
it sure sounds like they, they have a very strong case. And the best case scenario would be the verdict of him found not guilty as opposed well, to being thrown out. You can never predict what a jury is going to do. True. Yep. That you got to convince 12 people that he's yep. not guilty. Now, right. is it possible that this case ends in a mistrial because you've got a hung jury? Well, that's possible. But I, I agree with you, John. I think that at this stage of the game, and evidence is closed. All we're waiting for is, you know, to closing arguments to be completed and the judge to instruct the jury. I think there's a strong likelihood that as far as the murder charges that this guy will be found not guilty. Will he be found guilty of the misdemeanor um, charge of having um, an unregistered weapon? Um, maybe yes, maybe no, but I think the jury will be so... Um, displeased with the prosecutor's performance i think they're going to find him not guilty on everything and let's assume it's a hung jury or let's assume remarkably the jury comes back and finds this guy guilty the judge could still take the verdict away Um, he could enter not guilty notwithstanding the verdict or he could then play the mistrial card and force the prosecution to do it all over again so the judge has a number of um, options if it's a hung jury or if the kid was to be found guilty. The judge could say, no, 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 you know, this is such a prejudiced you know, uh, evidence that's been put on. I'm not going to let the guilty verdict stand. I'm going to take it away. Or this guilty verdict could have only resulted because of the prosecutorial misconduct and now I'm going to declare the mistrial. So there's a number of things you can do. Folks, quick break, a lot more. Attorney Tim Dodd right here on the John DePietro Show. Well, health continues to be an important part of our daily lives. That's why you need to stop in and see the queen of health. It's Maria. It's my health because it's your health. But it's my health. 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland. Look for her on Facebook. You can also call her at 401 401- 305-3585. You know where she is, right in that very majestic old white church diagonally across from Davidport Restaurant. It's my health. And inside, pop in, you'll see vitamins, herbal remedies from trusted companies who understand quality, integrity, local products like acai, honey, maple syrup, beef fresh gum. It's my health. 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland. Wait till you see the selection over 250 bulk herbs, teas, spices purchased by the ounce, plus boxed herbs and teas, plus hemp and CBD products. Stop in natural skincare products, hair care products. It's my health because it's your health. Stop it and see Marie, 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland. We're speaking with our legal expert, attorney Tim Todd. Tim, I just want to uh, go a little bit more on the on the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Um, <clears throat> I mean, from what I saw, Tim Dodd, this was 17 when he was 17 when it happened. He's 18 now. Boy, I mean, talk about, he just seems earnest. He lives with his mother. He was there to try to help out. Uh, he was not, you know, he's, he seems calm, measured, composed. As, as much as people may say, oh, he's rehearsed, but th- there's nothing wrong with defense attorneys making sure that someone is comfortable in what they're about to go through. And I think he's one of the best or better, I should say, defendants that I've seen take the stand in a long time. I agree with you, John. He, he was, he looks a little goofy. He dresses a little goofy. And, you know, for a year now, the media has been portraying him as this gun nut that he was there looking for trouble, that he's a vigilante, that he's got a martyr complex, that he's a white supremacist, that he's a domestic terrorist, all of these characterizations. Um, remember, this, this kid was charged with murder within, what, two days of this mm. shooting before the cops could have had any of this information. But it was a political rush to judgment yeah. to charge this kid so quickly. Mm. Um, you know, and apparently, and every state differs, John, but in Wisconsin there's a pretty um, broad statutory framework for asserting a um, self-defense defense in in a criminal Uh matter. 
Yep. Um, other jurisdictions are less so. Every state's a little bit different. Remember George Zimmerman? He was yes. benefited from the um, stand your right ground. Stand your ground, exactly. Now Florida. that was Florida. If he was yep. in a different jurisdiction, he may not have had the benefit of such a um, statute. So this kid's being tried in Wisconsin, where their self-defense laws are very different than what you might find in other jurisdictions. So he mm-hmm. gets the benefit of the rules of the game yep. in this particular jurisdiction. And, you know, there's a lot of liberal media commentators right now saying that this is just wrong. He shouldn't be able to do what he's doing up there. But that, that doesn't take into account the law, the statutes and the statutes and the rules of evidence, which are unique to the state of Wisconsin. He's yep. playing by those rules. His defense team is using those rules brilliantly. And, um, you know, there are some days you leave the courtroom if you're on trial and you kind of are a little bit despondent. And there are some days you leave the courthouse very elated that you've had a good day. Um, this defense team is having a lot of good days. And that's not to say that this is a tragic situation that two guys died and a third got severely wounded. So when I say they're having a good day and they're elated, they've got a man that they're trying to find not guilty of a, you know, a murder charge, which would put him in jail for decades. So, you know, the stakes are high. Um, They've got a wonderful defense that they're crafting and putting before this jury um, and as you said, John, this kid was a tremendous witness. He was yeah. unflappable and yep. he knew just where to, I don't want to say stick the knife in, but where to get his rabbit punches in and stick it to oh. the prosecution. And I don't think the prosecution ever saw this coming. I, I don't think they were ready for this kid to testify. And mm. I don't think they were ready for him to be such a good witness. I think they thought if he got up on the stand, they were going to tear him apart because he looks like yeah. a goofy kid and he surprised everybody. Tim Dodd, finally on this particular, if, if let's just say, you know, he is in fact acquitted, could we start to then see some uh, civil action of Kyle Rittenhouse going after some of these media outlets that were portraying him as a white supremacist and racist and uh, the way he's been portrayed for the past year? Potentially, yes, okay. potentially. Um, you know, it, it gets into, you know, if it's reported as a fact or if it's the opinion of right. a particular talking head, okay. um, you know, like with uh, Nick Sandman, he was able to uh, go after all the media outlets because yep. they were reporting it as a news fact. Right. You know, not, it wasn't, okay. these weren't opinion pieces that was being reported as fact. Now, you know, if the report is, well, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, the young white supremacist vigilante, was charged with murder. Well, that could be something that would be actionable for um, Rittenhouse. And, you know, the backdrop of this is there's already groups in Wisconsin saying that if this guy is found not guilty, well, people who are upset are going to take to the streets. And if you recall, and I know you recall, this all started as an aftermath to that Jacob Blake situation. That's right. Um, And that's another one where the facts that the media first comes out with as to what happened with Jacob Blake, um, the first impression which the media puts out is typically wrong. And it was wrong once again. It was wrong on what happened with Jacob Blake. And that incorrect report reporting precipitated nights of rioting. That's right. Kyle Rittenhouse gets in the middle of one of these nights of rioting. Um, what happens happens in terms of his firing his weapon. The media then dutifully misreports everything that happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, the circumstances, right. the motivation, yep. what he did, when he did it, why he did it, what was the nature of the, the gentlemen who were pursuing him, um, cherry-picking video um, footage, <clears throat> which... Put uh, written Rittenhouse in the worst light and didn't present other video evidence when it became available. Um, terrible reporting, just terrible. Mm. Tim Dodd, close to home, we have now heard from an attorney that's representing the um, the teacher, former teacher, coach, 
of North Kingstown. This goes back to the whole, you know, we're going to do a body fat test and then it comes the naked body fat test or shy or not shy. We've learned a little bit from the attorney that's representing him. Number one, saying he's self-taught with how to do these tests. Number two, continues to argue that, you know, he dedicated himself. There was nothing untoward. I'm just curious what you make of the uh, statements from the attorney. And I'll tell you, I think Attorney General Pina Narona, they're certainly under the gun to look at this and see if there's, you know, something that was done other than just meet me in the closet and 14, 15 year old kids at North Kingston High School getting naked for the coach. Well, the coach has hired himself a very good lawyer. I know John McDonald. He's a very quality, um, highly, highly competent um, criminal defense lawyer. Um, and he said a few things um, he, that the coach had been uh, doing this same fat testing for years. Allegedly, it was to help um, his athletes um, on his teams uh, get in shape and stay in shape. And apparently he kept copious statistical records yep. of what these fat tests indicated. So the fact that he was keeping test results would suggest that he was doing this for a legitimate purpose and not as a pretext to do some weird thing for some sort of sexual gratification. Yep. The further thing that um, John McDonald did come out with is that his uh, client fully cooperated with the investigation that had previously been done by the North Kingston Police Department. And that investigation resulted in no criminal charges. So when this was a hot topic um, before the coach got uh, terminated or separated from his employment with the town of North Kingston, there had been a police investigation oh. and they didn't find anything. So, yeah, I mean, I can listen to what this guy was doing and be as creeped out about it as the next person, but I don't yet hear elements of criminal conduct. Mm. So parents might be upset saying they didn't know this was going on. The other thing that John McDonald said was that parents signed release forms mm. over the years to allow this to occur. Now the parents have some of a few have come out on the record to say, well, you know, it's a long time ago, but gee, maybe I did that. But if I did, I don't recall anything about them being naked. Cause if, right. if I saw naked in there, I would have raised Holy hell and said, what are yep. you, what are you doing over there? So who knows what the releases might've said. And if all parents signed them or not, um, either the records exist or they don't. Um, and even right now, there's still no young men coming forward and saying, you know, the coach touched my buttocks, the right. coach touched my uh, genitalia. Yeah. <clears throat> Apparently, there's one anecdotal story that the coach te uh, checked one kid out for a hernia, allegedly, which would have put his hand in very close proximity to uh, male male genitalia yep. but there's no kids coming forth saying yeah he did it to me yeah he you know touched my penis yeah he touched my testicles yeah he made comments about how i looked there's no one coming out with anything that would turn this into a pretextual situation for the merely for the coach's gratification to look at naked young men so far oh. it's not there yep Folks, another quick break, a lot more. Attorney Tim Dodd right here on the John DePietro Show. If you're ever in an accident, pick up the phone and call West Fountain Auto Body today, 401-272-3340. Were you in an auto accident, someone damaged your vehicle? Folks, it can happen, whether it's people not paying attention, a drunk driver, people texting and driving. If you're ever in an accident, pick up the phone, call West Fountain Auto Body, 401 272-3340. They're located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence. Remember, with West Fountain Auto Body, they're going to work for you, not the insurance company. Call them today. If you were in an accident, drunk driver, someone texting and driving, minor fender banner, even a nearly totaled vehicle, call West Fountain Auto Body today. 401-272-3340. They'll handle everything for you, the original, the best, and 
If you're in an accident and a tow truck pulls up, tell them, bring that car over to West Fountain Auto Body, 401-272-3340, 401-272-3340, West Fountain Auto Body, located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence. They'll work for you, not the insurance company. If you're in an accident, call West Fountain today. Get it repaired, 401-272-3340. We're speaking with our legal expert, attorney Tim Dodd. And Tim, this uh, concert that really went off the rails in in, uh, in Houston, it has to do with the rapper, Travis Scott. There's already been something filed. Um, I, I have a feeling this is just the tip of the iceberg, beginning of this whole thing. Um, maybe he's insured. Maybe the promoter, I would imagine, they're insured in some way. But what about, is there some point, we've learned also the sheriff had warned him about some of the antics of kind of getting the crowd uh, riled up, and it sure sounds they didn't have the proper type of security. But how how do we see this uh, legally breaking out so far? Well, it's 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 it goes without saying that this is an unspeakable tragedy. I mean, it's just a horrible situation. A bunch of young people out to have fun at a concert, and they wind up in this sort of mayhem. Um, Anecdotally, when I was in college many, many, many years ago, I went to a show. It was The Who. It was at a small venue. It was in Europe. And there was a crowd surge. And everyone was standing. And I got pushed forward. And I lost my balance. But I couldn't fall to the floor because I fell into the person in front of me. And and no one could hit the ground. We all kind of held each other up. Right. If anyone fell in that situation, you're doomed. I mean, you're just doomed. And this was a venue with what, 50,000 people? Yeah. And um, tightly packed in. Not only were there trampling injuries and deaths, but people were so tightly squished that they were asphyxiated, which I've never heard of that happening. Wow. Um, It's astonishing that that would be happening. Now, from a liability standpoint, you got this guy, Travis Scott, there's, you know, stories are breaking left and right. Um, We had a story a couple of days ago that one of the security guards was stabbed in the neck by somebody who injected him with drugs and that he had to be hospitalized. That story has been fully discounted. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth with different people saying different things occurred. This guy, Travis Scott, apparently has a history of inciting the crowds at his shows um, to disregard the police, to disregard the security, to act up, to, you know, let loose, if you will. Now, if he incited the crowd to this sort of surge, it's not really violence. It's just really a surge. Um, Was that negligent? Was that grossly negligent? Was that criminally negligent? Uh, Did he know or should he reasonably have known that um, what he was saying and doing would incite this type of a crowd surge? Apparently, he had been fined in the past in another jurisdiction for doing something similar. And we know there's reports of other people who have been left injured and paralyzed from having similar things happen to them at previous shows by this guy, Travis Scott. So, John, in addition to Travis Scott, presumably he's got a lot of money. Who knows if he's got sufficient insurance? Astro World, the venue, is going to get sued. The security oh. company is going to get sued. Live Nation is going to get sued. Uh, so there's going to be any number of um, pockets to pick from a monetary standpoint. And you would presume they've all got some hefty insurance coverage. You know, the venue, the security company, Live Nation, you would think they've got a ton of insurance. And just like um, with the um, station fire, there could be other um, more remote but still liable players in this. For instance, was this show co-promoted by any beer companies or was it co-promoted by any alcoholic beverage, you know, like hard liquor or... I don't know who else promotes shows, you know, automobile dealerships, you know, any number of national or international players might have been a co-sponsor. 
because um, this guy's pretty popular. He fills up stadiums. Now, if you were a co-promoter, let's assume you're XYZ Beer Company and you're co-promoting the show for this guy and you're providing some of the funding and the promotion and you know he's got a track record of people getting injured at his shows and he's got a track record of inciting people to disregard police, disregard security and to act up. They could find themselves on the hook as well from a liability oh. standpoint. The bigger question will ultimately be, will there be any criminal charges that come out of this? Right. You know, um, I wouldn't see it right now, but we're so early in this investigation there's anecdotal reports that people were begging uh, security to help them. And basically the security guards would look at the situations. I, I think with the notion, there's no way I'm getting into that crowd because I'm going to wind up getting killed too. And they yeah. sort of stood down. Now, mm. was it criminally negligent of them not to have assisted or was it reasonable because there was simply an insufficient number of security there? Apparently, between security and cops, I, I think the number was something like 300 um, security and cops were at this venue for this show. Well, that may seem like a lot to me, but based upon what was going on there, you know, perhaps that was an insufficient number which the promoters and the venue and Live Nation knew or reasonably should have known was insufficient. Only time will tell. There's going to be a lot of parsing of the conduct of all the players in this case. But Tim Dodd, he, he could end up find, facing some charges, Travis Scott. For inciting a riot crowd. or... Yeah, inciting like basically inciting a riot, if not inciting the crowd to behave in the way that it did. Um, one presumes this was all being recorded by his people or by right. fans in the stands. There's going to be a ton of evidence. Mm. And what's most troubling about his conduct, which could lead to some criminal charges, is apparently it, it's not funny. It's just astonishing he was into his show for about an hour before he stopped. He kept, he kept performing while ambulances were lugging people out of there. Wow. He still kept going while they were taking people out, you know, on stretchers and in ambulances. And apparently people at the front of the stage towards the front of the stage who were being crushed and pushed, oh. apparently it's unverified were chanting, stop the show, stop huh. the show, stop wow. the show. Now, maybe he'll say, I couldn't hear it because of right. the speakers, et cetera. But someone should have been in a position, if this is true, that the people were pleading, stop the show, stop oh. the show. Somebody should have done something, but apparently it went on for about an hour before they stopped the show. Yeah. So... That's where I think this guy, Travis Scott, could be in some criminal jeopardy. Folks, he is our legal analyst. Um, we're going to leave it there, attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, fantastic job as always. We're going to follow the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks, John. Take care. Folks, you're listening to The John DePietro Show. Joining us right now, he has a new book out in Trump time. It is Peter Navarro. Peter, first of all, congratulations on the book, uh, take us through the process that you decided to write this book in the first place. I think it goes back to the very beginning. Uh, I, I was only one of three senior White House officials who was with the president all the way from the campaign in 2016, where I served as his uh, chief economic advisor, all the way to the end of what we like to say, uh, the end of his first term. And it, what was interesting is early in 2017, when I came into the White House, I was shocked. I don't get shocked easily, but I was shocked by how many people inside the perimeter, inside the White House, inside the administration, were actually di actively disloyal to the president and his agenda, who disobeyed the chain of command. And I thought at that point, you know what, I'm going to be part of history in some small or large way. Um, so I better keep a daily journal. And that's what I did every night when I came home, no matter how tired I was, I wrote down on what, what happened that day. And the In Trump Time book, 
uh, the in Trump time means as quickly as possible exp- expression I coined. The in Trump time book describes the last year uh, of the administration during during the plague year. And um, I think the beauty of the book is it finally provides an insider's account. It offers the truth of what actually happened and the, the gulf between what people have read about in the, in the fake news and the corporate media versus the actual re- reality about the president himself, about the evil Tony Fauci, about the betrayal of the president by the vice president, Mike Pence, about what communist China actually did to us in terms of attacking America with a virus, and about what happened on both November 3rd and November 6th. Uh, that's what the interim time book really is about. It's a book, I think, of both revelations, but also indictments. And um, today, uh, I'm honored to be on your show, because today is the day the book actually officially uh, publishes. Folks, again, we're speaking with Peter Navarro, his new book in Trump Time, Journal of Americans Plague Year. Peter, you write about your uh, first encounter with with Dr. Fauci. What can you tell us about that? Chapter two of In Trump Time, let's take you right into the iconic situation room. It's January 28th, 2020. We're at the, the dawn of the pandemic. There's really only three people in the White House who are taking this pandemic seriously at this point. It's the president, myself, and the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. And the president has dispatched me on a very, very important mission, which is to go to the sit room and convince the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Mason at the time, to support the ban on travel from China. This would turn out to be one of the most prescient and courageous decisions of the president. It would save millions of lives. But at that point, the, the, he had a lot of opposition. So he sends me. I'm the tip of the spear. I'm his tough guy. I go in. The staff's down at the end of the table. He's chairing the meeting. I got one of I, I love Mike Pompeo, but the people who worked for him were, were just a lot of hacks. And I had one of his hacks by my left shoulder across the way. The, uh, the Orville Redenbacher doppelganger and Robert Redfield, the CDC head, um, just one of the most bumbling bureaucrats I've ever met. And you had Azar there, right? So I knew I was going to have problems with the four of these guys. But across from me, there's this little guy, little round glasses, didn't know he walked on water, didn't know he was a saint. He was just a guy, right? And two minutes in, I'm in a violent argument with him. <laughs> and he keeps insisting that, <laughs> he keeps insisting that travel bans don't work like a parent like I'm, I'm I'm going dude and I actually said to him dude it's like uh dude it's like you mean to tell me that if you got 20,000 Chinese nationals coming in a day uh many from Wuhan many of them lit up like a christmas tree with virus that it, it's like come on down like let them in right no 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 we're not doing that <laughs> so the, the meeting erupted, it ended like in total chaos um, with me fighting him and Mulvaney and everybody else. But but at the end of the day, I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking he thinks he's smarter than he is, which is dangerous. But but I knew right then, I knew right then he was going to hurt both the nation and the president. But here's the interesting thing about that story uh, in the In Trump Time book. It's the lie not the Congress, which which Fauci did, but was the lie of omission. Let me let me explain something that, that people need to understand in this country very clearly. At the at, by that point, early in the pandemic, Fauci already knew that he was culpable in the pandemic. What did we know right then? We knew that the, the virus came from Wuhan. We knew that the virus popped up within yards of a Wuhan bioweapons lab. We knew that Fauci funded that lab through grants we knew that he authorized gain of function experiments at that lab which which were capable of turning harmless bat viruses into human killers and here's the here's the kicker he received an email from a top scientist that very month that told him flat out this thing was genetically engineered the lie of omission, the big lie of omission of Tony Fauci was not to tell me, the president, and the task force that that thing likely came from the lab. He never raised that issue. It cost millions of lives worldwide, hundreds of thousands of American lives. 
that man belongs in an orange jumpsuit, not as the <laughs> highest paid bureaucrat and plaque of the Biden administration. Folks, we're speaking with Peter Navarro, his book in Trump Time, a journal of America's plague. Yeah, Peter, I want to tell you, I read a lot of books. I don't know if you realize how funny you are. I was literally laughing out loud <laughs> reading this book. And it sounds, you know, as I'm here out talking to you. I can now I can picture your voice as I was reading it. I mean, folks, it is such like a straight from the hip, no BS. Um, Peter, I I have to ask you. I mean, aren't you? Are you surprised that nine months in the Biden administration is already, you know, completely uh, the Titanic? Seventy one percent feel he's on the wrong path. I mean, they've already lost their way. Not surprised at all. I I predicted uh, right after uh, the the transition of power, I guess you'd call it, that Biden would be gone uh, within a year or a year and a half, uh, simply because it's it was obvious to everybody who wanted to look that this man had diminished mental capacity and that he invariably made bad decisions. I mean that he was known for that in like within the Obama White House. And he surrounds himself with people who have no understanding whatsoever of how economies work. I mean, look, in, in Obama-Biden was eight years of, of massive federal debt, sta- economic stagnation, and flat wages, right? They, 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 so we come along, you know, I'm, I'm out with the, with the boss. We're campaigning on structural change in the economy tax cuts, deregulation, strategic energy dominance, and fair trade. That was our mantra. We, we put that in, and we grow above the forecasts, and real wages rise, particularly for black and brown Americans and blue-collar workers. I mean, and so Biden, Biden comes in and then goes, you know, reverts to the Biden incompetence mean. Doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. And, and, and by the way, when I'm, 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 I'm so honored by what you say about when you read the book, um, w- when I wrote the book, I actually dictate, I use voice dictation yeah. software, and I try to write for the ear rather than the eye. It works. So, it works. And, and if you listen to the book, what's fun about the audio book, I, I did the narration myself, as you, as you might expect. I always like the author to do the narration. But I also have some guest voices in there. Uh, as part of it, so it's more like a dramatic production. Oh wow! Steve, Ban- Steve Bannon's in it. Oh boy! Mr. Davis Hanson. Uh, the boss has a little cameo. <laughs> Corey Lewandowski absolutely steals the show. Wow! Uh, when he relates the story, I don't know if you remember the book, the story about him being on Air Force One with Dave Bossie. Yes. And how they're reading the riot act to Jared Kushner and, and campaign about not being ready for uh, for the steal that's about to come. Uh, so he narrates that whole thing. So it's 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 kind of a for folks who prefer like the audio books, uh, this one I think you'll find to be a, a little bit of cut above most of what uh, what you're going to get. But I, the, for me, the book submission. I mean, my mission is to take Fauci down. This is the Fauci fire. <laughs> that guy's got to go. I'm sorry. He is he is a murderer. I make the case. Uh, you don't believe me? By the time you get to the end of it, I'll give you double your money back. Uh, we got to hold China accountable, and, and we really do get, have to get to the bottom of what happened on November 3rd and January 6th. This is going to be the first audio book that I'm going to buy, and I hope my family's not listening because you're all getting copies of the book. Folks, it is in Trump time, Journal of America's Plague Year, Peter Navarro. Peter, I mean it. I'm going to have you back. A pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations. I, this is the best book of 2021. Hilarious. Oh, I'm so flattered so, by that. All right, Thank Peter. You, sir. Congratulations. Bye-bye.